In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This morning I'm going to talk about suffering and failure and priests. There's a joke to be made about suffering the failure of your priests, but I'll let you write that yourselves. But before we even get into today's texts, I want to quickly mention a different text, a promise God made to his people at the foot of Mount Sinai after they had been rescued from Egypt and were about to receive the law. In Exodus 19, it says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so at the very beginning of that phase of God's rescue plan, he gives his people a special role, priests. A priest is, by definition, someone who acts as an intermediary between God and someone else. So the people of Israel, if they were to be faithful to the covenant that they were given, would be the intermediary between God and who? Well, the rest of the world. God's people were going to be this kingdom of priests who would be the way that God would draw near to and rescue the world from itself, from its own sin. But we know how that story goes not so well. We read this morning from Jeremiah, a prophet who gets to shout truth into the void for no one to listen. He tries to call God's people to repentance, but they ignore him, and he ends up seeing the downfall and exile of the last remnants of that kingdom of priests. As we read, the people broke that covenant like an unfaithful spouse, but Yahweh, their God, refuses to allow his plan to fail. He's something of a stubborn God, not letting humans ruin his intent to help them, no matter how hard they try. So he makes this promise. He'll make a new covenant. He'll write his law into their hearts. They won't need anyone else to teach or point them to God because he'll be with them. I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Humanity gets a new and better chance to build a relationship with God. But if it were up to us to keep our end of this new covenant, the whole project would have failed all over again, which gets us to this morning's reading from Hebrews. The letter to Hebrews talks about Jesus' priesthood by talking about Melchizedek. In Genesis, Melchizedek is this priest, the king of Salem, who shows up after Abraham wins in battle. He blesses Abraham. Abraham tithes a tenth of what he has to Melchizedek, who then goes on his way. If you were reading through Genesis, you'd likely overlook this story and wouldn't give it a second thought. But the New Testament picks up on it, and the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus' priesthood is like Melchizedek's, borrowing language from the Psalms, and so it's superior to the Levitical priesthood, the priests of the Old Testament. With this new and improved covenant comes a new and improved priest of a better, more ancient line. Now this feels a little bit like an argument based on technicalities about whose contract came first, but this morning we read more descriptively what it is that makes Jesus this superior priest beyond just his rightful title. For one, because he is sinless, he doesn't have to offer sacrifices for himself, which makes him more holy. Other priests offer a sacrifice for the people and for themselves, but Jesus has to do no such sacrifice for his own sin. So he's more worthy. But Jesus' priestly work is more than just God showing up and taking care of things, like a parent fed up with how long a kid is taking to tie their shoes. You guys stop, I'll just do it on my own. A sentence I'm very used to saying. Jesus becomes flesh and he submits. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. 
And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now that word perfect has less to do with quality and more to do with completion, with finishing up, with fulfilling. It's the same root word that Jesus speaks later in John's gospel from the cross when he says, it is finished. Jesus doesn't go from imperfect to perfect, from flawed to flawless, but he suffers and comes alongside humans. And he fills up his role as priest by taking on that suffering on himself. He's able to sympathize with our weakness since he was tempted in every way that we are, albeit without sin. This better covenant promised in Jeremiah that would free God's people from their failed patterns of self-destruction had to come through this better mediator, one who is at once both more holy than we are and yet willingly suffers alongside us as our representative. And so when we reflect on our failures, on our weaknesses, on our brokenness, we know that Jesus has walked the path of suffering as well. The God that we worship did not hover over the earth, reaching down to fix everything, but emptied himself and fully embraced our weakness to become the perfect priest, to connect us back to the God who stubbornly refuses to allow humanity to spin out of control and destroy itself. This is why the term priest is something of a misnomer for me. It's a little bit misleading. There's only one person who bridges the gap between you and God, and that's Jesus. The word priest isn't really used in the New Testament to describe what I do. Any language for church leadership from scripture uses shepherd or pastor. And we live in the tradition that we live in. We're Anglicans, and there are still reasons to keep the term around. But I don't offer any new sacrifices on Sunday morning. Father Martin doesn't mediate God to you on Sunday morning. Jesus is the one who does that. So this morning when you receive from the table, it's not by the work and virtue of our priesthood. It's by the work and virtue of Jesus. So how does Jesus do it? Well, this morning's gospel text comes just after the triumphal entry. Palm Sunday has happened. Jesus is in Jerusalem. The king has arrived. And they're getting ready to celebrate the Passover. Now, there are some Greeks from out of town who want to see Jesus. And he takes this as the cue that he is about to finish his priestly work of making God known to the whole earth. So his response to some Greeks want to see you is, now it is time for me to be glorified. Or now it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. But the glory he's talking about is dying. If you love your life, you will lose it. Hate your life and you'll get to keep it. He's talking about this strange way in which he's going to be glorified by dying a public mockery of a death, going to the cross where failed messiahs go. And this troubles him. He knows how it is going to happen. He's bothered enough by it that he feels like he has to wonder out loud whether he ought to try and change the course. The answer to the question is no. This act of self-sacrifice is the very reason he came to earth in the first place. He understands his mission. And then the Father from heaven speaks audibly about this glory. The stubborn God will reveal himself to the world through suffering. Not because he is some sort of sadist. This isn't divine child abuse, as some will claim. This is God choosing to love us before we love him, to suffer for us while we're still his enemies. That is what God's glory looks like. And he writes, says in his commentary on John, swords don't glorify the creator God. Love does, self-giving love best of all. The way in which the stubborn God who refuses to let humans go shows himself is by loving us so much that he'll take suffering and shame upon himself. So what about us? Jesus says, whoever serves me must follow me. 
Now, if you're like me, we're five weeks into Lent, and you've probably already failed your Lenten practice in one way or another. Whether it's through slight accommodations, you sort of go back and reinterpret the Lenten promise. Well, I didn't quite mean that, so it's okay for me to do this. We are excellent lawyers when it comes to Lenten practices. Or maybe it's outright abandonment. Maybe it's, you know what? <laughs> I'm just going to eat the chocolate. That's just going to happen. And I'm sorry, Jesus. I'm in that place too. I assure you, it's very uncomfortable to stand up at the table and pray about how our acts of service and study of God's word bring us closer to his generous heart, given that I feel like there's a lack of both of those things in my own life. But thankfully, rigorous spiritual exercise isn't what Lent in particular or our spiritual journeys in general are about. We are called to walk faithfully alongside Jesus in Lent, giving up good things to draw us closer to him. And that is in some ways the goal, that in Lent we submit ourselves, we go through our own suffering, and through that God shows up. And walking in the way of Christ does that. It shows our frailty and it can be of great use to us. I'm not throwing out Lent and spiritual disciplines in general. But Lent isn't a spiritual exercise program, a boot camp to boost up your spiritual life. Because when we fail in Lent and in life, when we do not keep our part of this new covenant, we can live in hope and faith that God has done his part and our part already. We don't add new pain to the cross when we fail. That work is finished. Jesus has already done it. And the difference between us and the exiled Israelites of Jeremiah's day is that we look upon the fulfillment of that promise in hindsight. They saw it looking forward to the cross. We get to look back and say this is already partially fulfilled. It's going to be brought to its ultimate completion in the life of the world to come. But we get this foretaste of what it looks like when God writes his law in our hearts. Lent is about recognizing our need for and then receiving God's grace. Because we are a broken and failed people, God knows and chose to make up the difference between us and him. Easter, which we're preparing for, isn't celebrating your excellent work, 40 days of Lent, congratulations, you made it. It's not a marathon where you get a medal for doing your work. It's celebrating Jesus' victory over sin. And the grace and healing that we receive doesn't stop with us. I said that the New Testament never describes my role using the word priest, but the word does show up. There are priests all over the Gospels and Acts in reference to the priests of Israel, and in Hebrews in reference to Jesus, but it has a different use in the book of Revelation. As John has this vision of the throne of God, there are these apocalyptic scrolls that no one's worthy to open. But then he hears, behold, the lion of Judah is worthy. And so he looks, expecting perhaps to see this lion, but instead he sees a sacrificial lamb. And in response, the elders and the living creatures that are around the throne of God sing this. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Revelation is echoing language from Exodus, that the fulfillment of that promise, which started at the foot of Mount Sinai, that God would make a kingdom of priests to mediate himself to the world, happens because of the blood of the cross. I know there are some who think Revelation is entirely a future-looking book, but for me, if we're looking at heaven, it makes no sense to have priests at all. There's no one to mediate to. If, if what we're looking at in Revelation is simply 
everybody who gets to be with Jesus, there's no more need for priests. There's no more need for mediation. We all get to be near Jesus. And so I think John, at least in part, gives us a picture of the church. The people of Israel were called to take the God who made them and loved them and freed them from slavery and show him to the nations around them. And that plan hasn't changed. The people of God are now called to do the same thing, to make the God who made us and loved us and redeemed us known to the world around us. Except we now have a different model for priest, our one and only true priest, Jesus. We're sent out each week not to go out and conquer, but to go out and love. We can follow in the way of our high priest, loving others, giving of ourselves, sacrificing, offering a self-giving love. If your picture of what it looks like to make God known to the world, of cultural engagement, of societal engagement, looks like victory, looks like conquering, maybe it's effective, but it doesn't look like what Jesus did. It certainly doesn't seem to be the way that Jesus makes himself known to the world. Jesus went out and suffered alongside people. And so I believe we're called to go out to a hurting world and hurt alongside them. And we'll fail. We'll fail... (laughs) Maybe not every time, but we'll fail frequently. But in our failures, we're still receiving healing from the one who is content to fulfill both sides of the covenant to bring us back to himself. We're called to be a kingdom of forgiven priests, to receive grace and then mediate that grace to others. So this morning, I pray that we would be humble and broken enough to receive from God his grace, but then to go out and show that grace to a broken and hungry world. Amen.